All right, today's going to be more palatable in terms of time and focus as we're only going to read one chapter today and not four, like last week. So why don't we stand and read Revelation 12? A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great dragon, a red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was cut up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared for God, by God, so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And then there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and times a half from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth and the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of the mouth. So the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome back to John's letter of Revelation. If you were living in the first century within the Roman Empire, As a Christian in one of the seven churches of Asia Minor, you would have probably had a question that repeated over and over in your head at different points in your life. It would go something like this. Why is it so difficult to be a follower of Jesus in this world today? Why does it seem like everyone around me is hostile? Why is there always so much potential for me to get hurt and for to be slandered and and the potential for suffering, why does that exist? It's a question that could be asked in many parts of the world today. If you lived in Iran, if you lived in China, Afghanistan, North Korea, 
different parts of Africa. And as I look on, at the writing on the wall, it's a question that you and I are going to ask more and more as Canadians as the time unfolds. John's purpose in writing chapter 12 was to really provide an answer to that kind of question. And he was basically saying this to the church, you know, your, your, your persecutions and your suffering appears very external. It appears like the hatred comes from the Roman emperor or your colleagues at work or your boss or some of your family members or the local authorities. But there's way more going on than meets the eye. John's message is that there's an invisible war going on in the spiritual dimension, an epic battle of cosmic proportions. And it's the root cause for why it's difficult to live as a believer in the first century. John's backdrop of this entire chapter really is founded on the, the fulfilling kind of the prophecies of Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. Perfect relationship with the Lord, no sin. Everything harmonious. The serpent comes and tempts, I guess the serpent in the form of Satan, right? Tempts Eve. She falls into the sin and believes his lies. And next thing you know, God has to deal with handing out justice for all the sin that was done in the garden. He talks to the serpent, he talks to the woman, he talks to the man. He starts in Genesis 3 by speaking to the devil himself. And he says this, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, which means hostility, between you, the devil, and the woman, and between your seed, your followers, and her seed. Now here's what's really cool about this whole verse. He will crush you, Satan, on the head. But you, Satan, shall bruise him, singular, on the heel. So what is happening here is the Lord is saying this to the, the devil. From this day forward, there's going to be hostility between you and the seed of the woman to come. He, singular. And we know this to be, of course, Jesus Christ. Anyone who chooses to follow Jesus Christ automatically gets adopted as part of his family. And so you fall under his seed, so to speak, in terms of the spiritual family. But he makes it very clear, God says this, Jesus will bruise you on the head, but you'll bruise him on the heel. The head, well, I'm going to ask the kids in here, if you ever, if you ever going to get hit with a baseball or a hard hockey puck with no equipment on, would you rather get it in the head or the foot? The head. Okay. Okay, I retire. I'm going home. I'm just going to... <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's not a good answer. <laughs> it's a fun answer, but it's not a good one. A head is a crushing blow. 
It could permanently give you brain damage or kill you. A foot, at the very least, will break it, and you'll have to be in a cast for a while. But the heel is a, is a temporary wound, but the head is a fatal wound. And so he's saying this right off the get-go in the curse. You are going to basically play in this world and cause a lot of damage. You're going to bruise people on the heel. But ultimately, in the end, Jesus Christ will crush you. And you will not be able to stop it. This is the backdrop of Revelation 12. And the language in here is filled from the all 17 verses with Genesis 3 in mind. If we miss that, we're going to play all sorts of gymnastics with the text and interpret things in ways that John never intended them to be interpreted. This is not, again, in this section, a linear timeline of events. He's trying to introduce us to holy war and the cause behind suffering and what the Christian response needs to be to a defeated enemy, the devil himself as a follower of a, as a, of a victorious Christ. Pretty exciting stuff. So John introduces three major players. The woman, the dragon, and the child. The woman is found in verses 1 and 2. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under the, her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Notice that John says that there's a sign in heaven. A sign. A sign in, in our day and age, just like it did in theirs, points to, sorry, points beyond itself to a greater reality. A sign points to something greater than itself. So we know right a way then that the woman here is not to be seen as literal. It's a sign of a woman. So it's pointing to something different in the spiritual truth. The clue to this is really found in Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, there's a historical account of Jacob and his wife Rachel and their 12 sons. By this point in their life, Jacob has been renamed by God Israel. He's been given the title Israel and his 12 sons eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph, the youngest brother, has two dreams. He has two dreams, and both of the dreams see his family bowing down at his feet. <laughs> Needless to say, when he told his family this, it didn't go so well. <laughs> you can imagine your children saying to you, guess what, mom and dad, everyone in my family is going to bow to me. And you're like, you're only a 17-year-old kid. Like, what are you talking about? Right? But this was prophetic. Look at Genesis 37.9. Then he had another dream, and he's told his brothers, listen, I had this time the sun, the moon, and the stars were bowing down to me. The sun in this text is Jacob, moon is Rachel, and the stars are the brothers. Of course, there's 11 stars, but Joseph is the 12th. And so right in the, in the beginning here, we see a reference to the development of the nation of Israel. Israel, the nation. So we're starting to get a clue as to what John is referring to, the nation of Israel. That's who the woman is. But remember how Genesis uses language, sorry, Genesis, Revelation uses language in these texts. 
He often refers to Jewish language and Israeli language to describe the entire community of believers in Revelation. So, for example, um, remember Revelation 7, the 144,000? He turned, sorry, he heard a number like the 144,000 and he heard the tribes of Israel. He turned around and saw a great multitude that no one could count. So he, John was saying this, they're one and the same. I'm using his Jewish language that sort of to, to describe the multitudes in heaven from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And so here he's using again this type of language to talk about the giant sort of restored Israel, the new Israel that includes all of God's people, God's entire community. God's entire community. We, we even pick this up in verse 17. In verse 17, let's read this. It says, The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and had to hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what's important here is the woman is directly associated with um, her children. And her children are known for keeping God's commandments. So if she comes from the woman's sort of seed, so to speak, obviously the woman keeps God's commandments. So the woman keeps God's commandments, the offspring keeps God's commandments, and we have a picture of the entire community of the people of God, people who are, who are followers of Jesus. Or in the Old Testament, people who were followers of God expecting Jesus to come. But either way, we have the entire community represented. And so this is important because this is back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, because once the Messiah has, as the main seed, has a spiritual family, we become heirs in that family. So really, if you want to use our modern day term, we have a picture of the church, actually, in the, in the woman. A picture of the church. But then we have another issue. We have the great red dragon who's there as well. Notice again in the great red dragon's description in verses three and four that it says that a sign came in heaven. So this dragon then is symbolic. It's pointing to something beyond itself. Well, thankfully, we don't have to look too far because verse nine describes him. Verse nine, it says, a great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old who's called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. We're not left to make a quandary as to who the dragon is. He's the devil. Now, these descriptions of him about the, you know, his horns and his heads and his tail and stuff like that, these are all basically taken from Daniel, Daniel's visions. And in Daniel's visions, it represented a powerful enemy against God. And so here he is saying the dragon is a powerful enemy against the Lord. The child, then, is found in verse 5. He, he says that she, or uh, actually, yeah, it's found, he's found in verse 5. And John leaves no qualms as to who he's speaking about because he quotes Psalm chapter 2. And in Psalm chapter 2, it's a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah to come in Israel. And so here's what it says. I have appointed my own king to rule in Jerusalem on my holy mountain Zion, and I will tell you what the Lord has declared. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. If you ask me, I will give you the nations. All the people on the earth will be yours. You will rule them with an iron rod. You will break them into pieces like pottery. 
Again, it's a messianic psalm. We know who this is talking about is Jesus, and this is who he's speaking about in verse 5. So with all the major players involved now, we've, we kind of know the story, and we can see the backdrop against Genesis 3. But there's two observations I don't want you to miss in this first section. The first has to do with the dragon. Notice his posture in verse uh, 4. He says that he stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Satan is standing basically in the labor room waiting for the kid to come out, the Messiah, so he can kill him. He's right there at the delivery room, ready to snuff him out. Now, this is a pretty um, strong language, but it's very similar to the Christmas story, isn't it, in Matthew chapter 2. Remember Matthew chapter 2? The wise men come to Herod and say, we're here because we've heard about a king coming into the land. And Herod says, oh, really? Uh, I'd like to worship this guy. Tell me where he is when you find him. So the wise men go off and they find him. But then the, God speaks to the wise men and says, you don't dare go back to Herod because Herod's going to go after that king and you can't, I don't want him touched. So the wise men sneak off. Herod finds out. He goes ballistic. He sends a command through the land to have every boy under two years old in Bethlehem and the surrounding area killed. Because by doing that, he's hoping he's going to encapsulate the king that was just born in the stable. God, of course, had other ideas and had that child protected. But we see the devil right in the beginning of the Christmas story trying to devour the child trying to devour the child to eliminate him so he will not fulfill God's plan. That hostility continued from birth throughout his entire ministry. Matthew chapter 4, after chapter 2 where the Herod story happens, we see him being tempted by the devil in the wilderness with the hopes of getting him to sin, destroying God's plan of salvation. And then we see him again probably just cheering like crazy at the crucifixion. <laughs> Which leads me to the second important observation in these first six verses. Despite the devil's efforts, he failed to achieve victory. Notice in verse 5 what it says in the, part, in the second part. It says, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What does that say to us? If you're caught up to God and to his throne, that speaks of his resurrection, of his ascension into heaven. That means even though the death appeared like Jesus' defeat, it was actually not. The ascension proved that he stood victorious over death. And so he triumphed over the devil. He triumphed over him. So from the outside, what appeared to be Christ's defeat proved to be his victory over the dragon. <laughs> Powerful imagery that John uses. And so John describes this continued defeat of the devil in the next verses. He uses beautiful poetic language to describe the defeat of the devil. Listen to it in verse 7. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and they were no longer a place found for them in heaven. 
and the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old is called the, the devil and the Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before God night and day. You notice the language there? Thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. It occurs six times in this passage. If you like to circle and underline, six times. Thrown down three times in verse 9, once in verse 10, once in verse 12, and once in verse 13. Another way of saying it is, at the, at the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, Satan was dethroned, decommissioned, so to speak. Further proof that this is referring to the salvation that Christ accomplished on the cross is by the song that was sung in heaven. After they see Satan falling and be dethroned, they say, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ has come. So they're talking about salvation in the context of Satan's defeat. Why, why this is so important, um, friends, is because I used to read this passage and think this was talking about the original sin. When Satan, like, you know, when Satan fell in the heavens. So you know, this, you know how it goes, right? We, we, all, we know that Satan at some point rebelled against God and was cast down to earth. And then when he was cast down to earth, that's when he went and tempted Adam and Eve. We, we know that that's what, what happened. This is not what it's saying here. It's actually talking in the category of the, the, the response of what happened after the ascension occurred. It was the dethroning and the decommissioning of Satan and his power because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It was a good learning, good learning for me this week in my own studies. So as I began thinking, what exactly... What exactly was this war over? What, what really is the war about? What is really at stake for the devil? And what's really at stake for Christ? Do you know what it is? The human soul. The battle is for one's eternal destiny. That's the battle. You know, everyone in this world is seeking to find purpose, finding it in, in, you know, trying to make a living, in planning our retirement, getting an education, booking our holidays, getting the kids to sports activities on time, having the money to do it, and so on and so on. The, the problem is, is that a lot of times in that sort of thinking and that sort of busyness, we forget about what the Bible says the number one priority for life is and what we're actually purpose for being here is. We are created to be in relationship with God so that when we die, we can continue to have that relationship with him in glory. And through having that relationship, it changes our purpose and the way we approach all these activities that I just mentioned. And none of them are wrong in and of themselves. But number one priority for the Lord is the human soul and one's eternal destiny. And that is what the battle between the devil and Christ is all about. 
This is why Colossians 2 and verse 13 through 15 is so beautiful in relation to what we just read. It says, you were dead because of your sins. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he gave all of our sins. He canceled out the record of charges against us and took it all away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Consider John 12, 31. He says, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the rule of this world, will be cast out. Now look at the timing of his casting out. When I am lifted up, crucified, basically, from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. See, what we learn here, and I should have done this slide before it, is that humanity has a problem. Humanity has a problem. According to Romans 3.23, all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person. Romans 6.23 then says, for the wages of sin is death. Physical, spiritual. So God has to do something about it. And he sends Jesus Christ to the earth so that he can cancel out the record of sin against us by dying on the cross on our behalf. If we receive him by faith, believing he died for us in our place, then we are forgiven of sin. And we have the right to be called children of God. The whole battle is over the human soul. And it's crazy because we look at all the things going on in the world and the craziness that's going on and the way people pursue life and the devil's got his hand saying, keep going that way because I've got you distracted from the main thing that God came to do for you. <laughs> I've got you distracted and I'm, and I'm taking you guys out. This is why this is important to John because even though the devil is ultimately defeated, he knows by no means that's the end of the story. The devil is not willing to go down without a fight, nor create as much harm as possible. Look at verse 12. For this reason, this, or actually back a little bit farther down, it says, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing he has a short time. He has a short time. So the devil seeks to harm people and seeks to destroy people because he hates people, seeks to keep them separated from God in whatever way he can see fit, knowing that his time is short. And what do we mean by his time is short? Basically, his reign in terms of harming the world ends when Christ returns. At the second coming of Jesus, Satan is dealt with and done with. And the demons know it, and so does he. I was reading Mark this week in my own personal devotions, and I came to chapter one, uh, sorry, chapter five, one through thirteen, with a demon-possessed man who approaches Christ at, um, when he comes to the the tombs. So Jesus arrives in the boat. He comes to uh, on the shore of Galilee. This deranged lunatic, demonic man uh, runs down the hill, approaches him and wants to challenge Christ. And these are the words the demon says. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. <laughs> the demon controls this man, and this man is 
is absolutely helpless under the power of Satan. He's naked, he's deranged, he's cutting himself, he's being shackled, he's, he's perverse, he's immoral, he's a screamer, he's a yeller, he's vulgar. No power under the devil's influence. Jesus shows up on shore and he says, please don't hurt me. <laughs> is it time for judgment? Incredible, incredible scene, if you think about it. The devil knows he's got a short time, and so he's going to make life a living hell on this earth. And he especially has it in and out for the people who follow the Lamb. He loves going after Christians. You notice that in verse 17? After his defeat, after he was disarmed by the cross, 17 says the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. He's enraged. He's defeated, but he's enraged, and he wants to make life a living hell for you and I. So what are his tactics? There's many things we could say from the scriptures, but I want to just stick with what Revelation says are his tactics. His tactics are threefold. The first one is deception in verse 9. Read it with me. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. His first one is deception. In other words, he plays games with the truth. He plays games with the truth. One of the primary ways he goes after us is to attack God's character by making him look like he's restrictive, like he's holding out in you, that there's a better way of life that he does not want you to live, that only he can offer, the devil can offer. And so as a result, he makes sin more attractive. We see this right in the Garden of Eden, right? He comes to Eve and he says, uh, why don't you eat? And she says, well, I can't. And he says, listen, the reason why you can't eat is because God knows he doesn't want you to be like him. In other words, Eve, he's a killjoy. He's a killjoy. There's, he's holding out in you. There's something better in this world that he's not going to offer you. He only wants it for himself. And so... Think about it in your own life. A lot of times when you read the scriptures, you come across God's commandments and you think, I don't want to do that because I don't think that's going to work out for me. I don't think that's going to work out for me. So therefore, I'm going to just go my own way. God's asking me to do something difficult, something hard, something that seems like it's going to like, do me in for the worst. And so therefore, I'm not going to follow through. He does it through making you question God's character and his loyalty, his trustworthiness, and his love for you every time. In 1 John 5.16, he says that, the, um, that the, there's a, the world is in control by the devil, and he goes after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So another way he does it is to say, um, well, let's just talk about what the flesh is. The flesh is whatever makes you feel good. Whatever makes you feel good. So I see that um, dessert in the table, and my body wants it. Even though like I've just eaten a turkey dinner and I'm so full I want to like throw up, 
I'm still going to go for it because the flesh can't say no to that without a fight. Okay? The flesh wants that. The eyes, everything I want, everything I see I want. Take your kids Christmas or take them shopping anywhere, anytime. doesn't matter if they had Christmas two days earlier. They want the toy that's in the aisle. I went shopping for a, a washing machine and dryer with Denise yesterday. I went in with a budget, and next thing you know, I'm looking at one's $1,000 more than I had planned in my head. Because I could have this. It's better. It's more economical. It's got Wi-Fi. It can, like, you know, I don't even know washing machines have Wi-Fi. They have Wi-Fi now that can troubleshoot if you have problems. So, like, I'm for 20 minutes contemplating this $3,000 washing machine when I'm thinking, why in the world do I spend $3,000 on a washing machine? Because the devil's going to deceive me and say, you need that to be happy. That's why. Pride of life. Whatever makes me look good to others. Whatever can boast my ego. And the devil accents all these things and he goes after them like crazy. And you know the word of God and he pulls on your flesh, your eyes and your pride to say, don't listen to him. He's restrictive. He's no fun. So, what else does he do? He accuses the brethren. It's a big one, Genesis house, a big one. That's verse 10. He says that basically when the kingdom of God came, the accuser of their brethren was thrown down. He accuses them before God night and day. When you're accused by the devil, the message is basically this. You don't measure up as a Christian. You shouldn't be going to Genesis House on Sunday morning based on the morning you just had with your family, with your wife, with your husband. You shouldn't be arguing with them and fighting out the door. Why are you even bothering going? He, live, he makes you locked down in shame and condemnation like you never measure up, like you never have worth. That's the devil's game. And then my first sermon in the new year was to help you understand your purpose and identity in Christ. No New Testament Bible book written starts off the opening chapter by saying, you bunch of sinners. He calls you saints. He calls you, he calls you living stones in his God's temple. He calls you friends. Those are the titles that God gives you. So you're a saint who has the potential to sin. You're not a sinner that has the potential to be righteous. We got it backwards, but that's condemnation. You don't measure up. The reason why we have victory and why we not to be accused is because it says here that he basically uh, disarmed him. He disarmed him. He threw that down. All the accusations of our sin fell on Jesus. He gives us his righteousness, so we stand in his righteousness. So the guilt we feel was already taken by the Lord. We can't punish ourselves more than the crucifixion. Try it someday. Punish yourself more than a crucifixion to try to earn your righteousness before God and say, I'm sorry. You can't do it. You won't do it. And even if you did get crucified for him, it wouldn't matter because you have sin in your life. And so you can't pay for that, that penalty. Only Jesus Christ could do it. 
If we're standing in condemnation and constant guilt, we are functioning in the devil's game. We're playing his game. That's why in John it actually says earlier, if you have sin, he, he is faithful to forgive us our sins if we just confess them. That's the way out of condemnation, or guilt, I should say. The way out of guilt is to confess, not to beat yourself up. So no more. Stand in the victory of Christ and the blood that he shed for you on the cross. So here's how deceit and accusation go together. I was thinking about this in my own walk the other day. Here's how they play together. The Satan stands on one shoulder and says this, you know what? You got to go after that, man. God's holding out on you, and he knows he doesn't want you to have fun, so go for it. Then you do it, and two seconds later, he says, you are a loser. I can't believe you just did that. You know better as a Christian, and the cycle repeats. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. (laughs) The third tactic is threats of physical harm. It's implied by verse 11. Because in verse 11 it says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of the testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So that means that if they were in a situation where they were faced with martyrdom, that means that the devil was up to trying to put them to death in the first place. So the devil's tactics is always to try at the very end, his sort of like, once deception and accusation are sort of in there and done with, Physical harm is always a final blow for the devil. And anyone who reads the voice of the martyrs or subscribes to those types of um, magazines or channels knows exactly what's going on around the world, and that's the devil's final game. So how do we gain victory? I'll conclude with this. How do we gain victory? The first one is that we've gained victory by the blood of Christ, what Jesus did for us. Notice that in verse 10, oh, sorry, verse 11. He says, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. In other words, in defeating the devil, the first thing is this, you don't have to do anything. He did it for you. Colossians says, he disarmed the rulers and the powers and the authorities. Jesus Christ did it. There's nothing for you to do. He's already won. He's already won. He's defeated. You just have to stand in that promise. Stand in that promise. That's all you have to do. Second thing is that we have to be, we overcome him by our witness. It says this, they overcame because of the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony This is really what we do for Christ in response to him for his love for us. And so we do this, I think, in a couple different ways. How do we we show him that the word of our testimony means anything? Number one, we know the devil loves sin, and he wants you to walk in disobedience to God. So part of your testimony is just to embrace the truth and walk in his commands. If you constantly say no to sin and the devil's ways, you overcome him because he can't tempt you. Or he can tempt you, but he has no victory over you if you keep obeying God. That's why Jesus was awesome in the, in the temptation for 40 days. For 40 days, he was tempted by the devil, but never sinned. He overcame the devil and had victory. 
So again, we do it through the way we walk in obedience to the Lord. The second is in the way we talk. We overcome by sharing our faith with others. Why? Because remember what the battle's for, the human soul, eternal destiny. If I have a non-Christian friend and I share the truth about Christ with them and they receive him, the devil loses one more person. And his family gets smaller and God's gets bigger. So again, it's important to share our faith because this is the way we help defeat the devil. And finally, according to Revelation 12, by our willingness to lay down our life. He says in the last part, they did not love their life even when faced with death. And Jesus in Mark and in Matthew says this, whoever seeks to save their life will lose it, but whoever will lose it for my sake will save it. And that's what's so powerful about knowing him, because there's power and hope in being a follower of his, because death is not the last word. For the majority of the world, the physical life is what they're holding on to. It's everything to them. As a follower of Jesus, death is not the last word. In fact, dying is actually for the greater good in terms of like your um, being in the presence of the Lord. Of course, it's going to be tragic for those left behind, but death is not the last word. And that's why we have to have hope in him, because he's the way in which we achieve that. So back to the beginning. What's Revelation 12 about? It's about holy war. It's about holy war. It's the reason why as Christians, life can be so difficult. The devil is seeking to destroy the lamb, but he can't. He's already been defeated. So his next best option is to go after his followers and make their life miserable. And so this is a word of encouragement to a struggling church to say, guys, Jesus has already won. Just persevere, be encouraged, keep going. Don't fall to his games. Overcome him with, these, with this understanding and you will receive the promise of eternal reward. So what do we learn? I probably could just stop there actually, but for whatever reason, then I gotta keep going. Lesson one. Christ's death and resurrection has rendered Satan a defeated enemy. That's verse five. He who gave, the, 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 the devil seeks to devour the child. He couldn't stop the birth. He couldn't stop the resurrection and the ascension. Couldn't prevent it. He's rendered him a defeated enemy. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, I love this passage. Paul says this, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? Because there is none for the devil. But there is one for the Lord. Number two, even though Satan's a defeated enemy, he's extremely hostile towards Christians with the hopes of destroying their faith through deception, accusation, and threats of physical violence. This is why in 1 Peter 5, 8, there's an instruction to Christians that says this, the devil moves around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you, but resist him firm in your faith. 
Finally, as believers, we defeat Satan by remembering what Christ has accomplished for us. His sacrifice on the cross already dealt with the, the victory. And through our continued witness to the point of being willing to lay down our lives for him. We may not be called to that at the very end of our lives. In North America, I don't, virtually no one has. But at some point, we may have to. But regardless, we're to hold on and overcome the devil through these promises. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for the morning. And uh, your word always speaks, speaks fresh, speaks new. And uh, it really challenges us. And I just pray, Lord, that we would embrace your truth. If any deception or accusation or anything like that has been part of our lives, that it be absolutely like squashed at this moment. We walk out encouraged, renewed, and we stand in your victory. Um, we, you overcame on the cross, defeated the enemy, and so we claim that over our lives, and we stand in that. And may we go out and be bold witnesses in this world and uh, defeat the devil and his tactics through our proclamation. In Christ's name, amen.